Wow. Uh, all right. Well, those of you who don't know me, my name is Jonathan Garrett. I'm the uh, associate pastor of young adults and outreach at this church. Um, I've actually been out the last couple of weeks. Uh, some of you may know, others may not. I, my wife, Jess, and I just had our fourth child, um, a little baby boy named Finn. He's awesome. Um, turns out four is more than three. <laughs> so we have... Uh, We've been scrambling a little bit. Our, our oldest is four years old, so we have our hands full, a lot of little youngins in the house. Um, you can pray for my wife, actually. We've had pretty normal deliveries for most of our children, but this one kind of ended in an emergency C-section. Um, it was actually really scary, uh, and, and she's recovering, but it's a lot slower than we thought it was going to be. So many of you have already reached out and, and prayed for us and helped us in a number of ways. Would you continue to lift us up as, as Jess heals and we get used to the, the new version of, of crazy that is the Garrett household. Um, thank you for your prayers. Uh, we're going to continue on and actually finish our, our series on 2 Corinthians today. We're doing all of chapter 13. And so we're wrapping up this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Um, and and it's, next week we'll actually start a new series, uh, a new series on, on the parables of Jesus. We're just going to do six, I think, before the end of the summer and then start a new series in the fall. We hope to learn a lot from those great stories that our Savior taught us uh, while he was here on earth. So wrapping up today, um, and it, it, this passage actually reminds me a little bit of, of when I was first starting seminary. When I went to seminary uh, to study to be a pastor, some people call it cemetery, good, good reason. Um, but when I went to seminary to study to be a pastor, I was worried about a few things. I was worried desperately about Greek and Hebrew. That had me very scared. Um, I was worried about the philosophical discussions that would go on. I was an engineering major in undergrad. I didn't know what I was going to do with all of that. What I was not worried about was preaching. Um, I thought, man, I've, I've been a youth guy for a while. I've, I've taught tons of times. I'm comfortable in front of folks. This should be a breeze. So I got to my first homiletics class. That's a fancy word for preaching. And, and it was a practicum. And our professor, Dr. Jimmy Egan, had us bring an outline in before we preached our first sermon. So I worked on the outline, I polished it up, and I knew this thing was a home run. It was good. And so proud of myself, I waltz into his office. I sat down and I handed it to him, getting ready for him to just lavish me with affirmation. He looks at it for a little while and just kind of makes some noises like, mm-hmm, hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he looks at me and says, that ain't it, brother. I said, what? He goes, yeah. Um, I, it seems like a lot of work and a lot of effort went into this, but, but brother, you just sort of missed it. And I was taken back, and he went on to explain why I may have missed the whole point of the entire letter uh, the passage was in. And then he went on to explain why I missed it. And I was so defeated, and he looked at me, and he put his hand on my shoulder, and he said, Jonathan. I said, what? He said, there's still time to get it right. You ain't preaching yet. You got three days. Go write the right sermon. And I thought, oh, okay. In a sense, that's what Paul's saying to the Corinthians. They've, they've strived to figure out Jesus and to follow him, but they've been misled by these super apostles. And, and in a way, they've rejected Paul. They've rejected the gospel. They've ridiculed Paul and undermined his ministry. 
Um, and, and honestly, there's just a good number in the church who aren't sure what they think about Paul and the gospel he proclaims. And Paul in this passage is saying to them, he's saying, I'm going to come, and I want this to be a good visit. You need to repent and embrace the gospel, the true gospel, and in doing so, embrace me, and then I can come, and we can have a friendly visit, and it'll be nice. But if you don't, if there's no repentance, then the fierceness that you've been hearing and reading in this letter is going to come and show up in person, and I'm going to come with God's rebuke and his judgment on you. But hey, good news, I'm not there yet. There's still time to get it right. There's still time to repent. So let's hear God's word, 2 Corinthians 13. Paul writes these words under the influence of the Holy Spirit who guided all of his words. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warned them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you, for he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him. But in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may do no wrong, that we may, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up, not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let's pray. Uh, Father, this is your word. And, and these words that were pinned to a church so long ago still uh, prove valuable to us today, Lord. We need to hear from you. So would you speak to us? Would you change us, convict us? But let us be met with the grace and the goodness of the gospel that comes through Jesus. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, this morning I want to spend uh, just some time looking at really two things. Um, the mistake that the church in Corinth makes and, and the correction that Paul offers them. Uh, really, the, to expand a little on that, the mistake that they're making, I believe, is a mistake that we can also make. Uh, we can do something very similar, and the correction that Paul applies to them can be applied to us as well. So let's just jump right in. What is the mistake that they're making? Now, we have talked about this a lot, even ad nauseum, and so you've heard over and over again the mistake that the church in Corinth is making, right? 
They're rejecting Paul. They're rejecting his gospel. And they're doing so because these other teachers who are influential, who are, are gifted in, in rhetoric, they are uh, wealthy, powerful. These men are saying, look at Paul, how he suffers. Look how he fumbles over his words. Clearly, he must not be a legit apostle, right? And so they're rejecting Paul. But Paul knows at the end of the day, it's not really about him. It's about God. He's God's man. He knows that he met the resurrected Christ, and he knows that he was called to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. He knows that he's supposed to tell them about salvation from sin, redemption of all the brokenness of the world that's made possible by the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. It's all about what Christ has done, not what we do, and that should humble us. And as a result, weakness is, is the way of our life. Weakness is what qualifies you for the gospel, right? And so it's not about prominence and power and displays of authority. It's, it's more about do you embrace the weakness and the frailness of your life and throw yourself into the arms of a capable Savior, Jesus? Paul knows that. And so if they challenge Paul, Paul knows that they're actually challenging God and God's ways. It's not really about him. Well, Paul employs this courtroom language. Did you, did you see it in verse 1? He says, this is the third time I'm coming to, to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And, and so Paul is, is basically using courtroom language, witnesses saying, there's about to be a trial. Y'all think you're trying me. You think you're putting me on trial. But really and truly, what you're doing is you're putting God on trial. You're putting God on trial. And C.S. Lewis actually caught this and said it very well in an uh, article that he wrote a long time ago and was published after his death. Someone asked him, what's, what's the big hang-up? Why don't people embrace the faith? And he said, you know, a long time ago, people would approach God as if they were the defendant and they stood under his judgment. But in this day and age, especially in the West, people tend to approach God as if they're in the judge's bench and God is in the dock, is what they would call it, the dock, that he had to sit and defend himself. And they're going to scrutinize him and his ways, ask questions, and make him conform to what they think normal and valuable is, right? And so as a result, the Corinthian church valued power and prominence and wealth, and they despise suffering and anguish and things like that. And so they are basically saying, God, we don't care for your ways. Why are you the way you are? We don't like weakness. Why do you make us weak? We should be powerful, right? And that's what they're doing. C.S. Lewis saw it then, and we can do that now, right? We can, we can have hang-ups with God and want to question God. Broad society does it without flinching. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with non-Christians. Invariably, when you meet someone and, and you tell them you're a pastor or that you work for a church, uh, the conversation gets at least interesting or it stops. And so in one interesting conversation, a guy who I can't repeat the way he said it, it would get PG-13 pretty quick, um, but... But he was telling me, he said, so you believe all of the stuff in the Bible? I was like, yeah. He goes, every bit of it. I'm like, yeah. He goes, water into wine, I mean like a couple pieces of bread turns into enough to feed everybody, like all of it. I'm like, yeah, you mean like the miracles? Yeah, absolutely, I believe in the miracles. And he's like, you think 
a virgin had a baby. And I said, I do. I do. And he was hung up on the miracles. God, if you, what's normal to me now is none of that stuff. So if you're wanting me to believe that, I can't embrace you. He was in the judge's bench. God was in the dock. And he's like, you don't meet my standards. You don't pass the test. Right? Um, Not only that, we know even more so today, um, if you take God's ways very seriously and you hold the Bible as your great standard, you see a biblical view of manhood and womanhood. They're, They're different, equal in God's eyes, but they're created differently. How does that hold up in today's society? Uh, Maybe you have a biblical view of sex and sexuality. How's that going to hold up today? As people want to have, I've talked to so many young people and they say, how do you embrace that? You know, it's it's our right. We can have, it's our bodies. We can have sex with whoever we want, whenever we want, right? Uh, Marriage and only marriage, that's it? That's so archaic. As a matter of fact, when the broad public examines God and asks for his answers, they often find them to be archaic or even reprehensible. They hate his answers. They find them repulsive, right? But it's not just for those people out there, is it? We have a problem. We can, we can put ourselves in the judge's bench as, as believers and, and put God in the dock as well, right? Um, it happens to us most of the time through experience. Um, we, we find, like the church in Corinth, that suffering isn't very palatable. We don't enjoy it, especially here in good old USA where life can be quite comfortable. And so when things go wrong, when, when God deals us a hand that we don't like, we tend to call his goodness into question, don't we? And we may not use that wording and say it that way because we know it's wrong, but that's what's happening. That's what's happening. See, we embrace Reformed theology here in this church, and if you are a good Reformed Christian, you know God is sovereign, and you know he's powerful, and you know he has the ability to change everything because he created the world and he sustains the world through the power of his word. So it's always his goodness that comes into question when things are hard and you can't reconcile your life to what God's doing or what you wish would happen to what God's doing. Uh, A silly example of this, when I decided to go to seminary, I was living in a house with several guys, you can call it a bachelor pad of sorts, and I'd owned this house for a while, and at the end of my my time living there, I was um, dirt poor still, and I was going to seminary, and so I had packed actually into a U-Haul everything uh, that I had, including things I didn't think I would need because I was going to sell them so that I could live until I found gainful employment while in seminary. And so I'm I'm scraping, trying to find things to sell, and while I'm unearthing things out of my attic, I hear a crazy sound, and it sounds like water, but I'm not sure where it's coming from. My roommate's in the shower. I, I go outside, and I realize that a pipe has burst underneath my house, and I'm leaving in two days for seminary. I said, you have to be kidding me. I go under, uh, under the house, and there was a clay um, crawl space, and it was soaking wet. I'm covered in mud, and I see that the pipe has rotted out, and water is everywhere, and this has to be fixed, but I don't have any money. So I did what anybody in my shoes would do. I got on YouTube. I got on YouTube, and I looked up how to fix a pipe, and I tried my best, and at the end of putting all the pipe together and gluing it and letting it dry, I, with great fear, turned the water back on, and it sprayed 
everywhere, covering me, soaking me with more mud and more clay. And I came out of, from underneath the house, and I remember in like a little temper tantrum, I threw a pipe wrench across my yard. Turns out you can't throw them far. They're heavy. Um, I heaved it, and I said, I literally said, how dare you, God? How dare you? How dare you make my life miserable and uncomfortable? How dare you make somebody who's going to train to be a pastor for you, how dare you make me more poor than I already am? Now I've got to call somebody to fix the mess that I just made in addition to the broken bike. And I was so angry at God. And we can be that way, right? Because in my mind, if you're going to serve him the way I was going to serve him, he owes you a pretty nice hand, right? He owes you a pretty comfortable life. And I was trying to reconcile God and his ways to my values. Some of you have been through far, far harder things than that. And, and it's understandable that you may have a hard time with God and his ways. It really is. But the question is, do you move from questioning him and challenging him back into his arms for comfort? Or do you become bitter and slowly continue to wonder, can I really find a God like that loving? Maybe you look at the injustice in the world and you say, can a God that allows calamity and brokenness, poverty, war, can he really be loving? You're in the bench and God is in the dock. We're making the same mistake the Corinthians made. We're presuming to be the judge over him. Here's the thing. I have to tell you this because I'd be loving, I'd be unloving not to, and it's the only loving thing I can do, and that's this. At the end of the day, what matters most is not what you think of God. What matters most is what God thinks of you. At the end of the day, Jesus will stand up to your cross-examination of his character and his ways, and anyone in the world who has problems with him, he'll stand up to theirs. The question is, will you stand up to his cross-examination of you? Because the Bible says plainly that though Jesus came in weakness and was a crucified and loving Savior, he will come again in power, and he will be the judge over the world. How will you stand on that day? The mistake we can make, just like the church in Corinth is, that we presume that we know best and God needs to reconcile his ways to us. And what Paul tells them to do is what we need to hear as well, and that's switch chairs with God. Put him back in the judge's seat and you get in the dock. In other words, you're going to be the one that's under examination, so examine yourself now. Examine yourself now, look at what Paul says. He says in, in verse 2 through 4, he goes, I warned those who sinned before and all the others. I warned them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. In other words, there's going to be a rebuke. There's going to be judgment, potentially excommunication coming your way. He goes, you're seeking proof that Christ is speaking in me. And he goes on to say, he's not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. What Paul is saying there, and I know that's some confusing wording, but what Paul is functionally saying there is we've been gentle and patient and kind with you up until this point. 
But when we come back, we're going to be like, like Christ was gentle and patient and kind on his first visit. We're going to actually display his resurrection power when we come back. And that is a power that you don't want. It's going to be a harsh rebuke. It might even result in you being out of the church. And so he's warning them. He doesn't want to do that. So he's warning them, do the right thing. There's still time to get it right. Repent. Change your ways. And what follows next is his exhortation for them. Paul is pleading with them. Do you see what he says in verse 5? He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. And then he goes on and says, or do you not realize this about yourself, that Christ Jesus is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you will not find that we, or I hope you will find that we have not failed the test. What Paul's saying there is this. He's saying, you need to test yourselves to see that if you are a genuine Christian or not. And when he says, I hope you will find that we have not failed the test, it's actually kind of slick what he's doing there. What he's saying is, if we failed the test, if we're frauds, if we're fake, then you're in trouble because we're the ones that introduced you to Jesus. But if you find that we passed the test, in doing so, you'll, you'll find that you're actually genuine Christians. It's kind of it's rhetorical, kind of clever right there, what he's doing. But, but Paul is really telling them, search your own heart to see if you're an authentic Christian or not. The test he's talking about isn't one like you would take at school where you can make an A or a B. It's more like a test of authenticity. You know when you buy um, something at a grocery store, if you ever use a big bill, like a $100 bill, what do they do? They take the little, they draw a little line on it or they hold it up to a light. They're running a test to see if it's an authentic dollar bill, to see if it's genuine, not a fake. Paul, that's the kind of test we're talking about here. Paul is saying, test yourself to see if you're genuine and not a fake. Now, why does Paul see that kind of test as a solution to having God in the dock, as to presuming that they know best what is or is not God and his ways? Why is that the, the thing? Well, if they reject Paul, if they reject Paul's gospel, functionally, they're rejecting God and God's gospel, right? That's what they're rejecting. And if they reject God and his gospel, then maybe they're not really Christians. And so Paul's yearning with them to really examine your heart. See, Christianity, the gospel, should drive you to humility. It should make you humble. It should, it should lower you. That's one of the things that, that Christianity does. They want power and prominence and influence, but Christianity says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It says that we're enemies. It says that we're vile. It says every number of things that, that's not really uh, flowery or nice to hear about yourself, right? And it should bring you low. And so if you presume to stand over God, and grill him why he's the way he is, that takes a bit of arrogance, doesn't it? So if you have that kind of pride in your heart, that kind of pride, saying I can stand in the judge's seat and God needs to answer my questions, then you might have missed the gospel. Because the gospel should develop humility in you again and again. And that humility should grow deeper as you understand it more and more. So, are you authentic? Are you authentically a Christian if you have 
the presumptuous pride that says that God has to stand up to my scrutiny, then maybe you've missed it. Maybe you've missed it. Now, here we go. How do we know? Um, How do you know if you have pride or if you maybe have missed the gospel, even though you've been in church for a long time? How do you know? Um, There's lots of ways to know. Theologically, do you profess Christ as Lord, the only way to salvation, and him alone through faith alone, by grace alone? Do you check those boxes? If you can say those things and believe them in your heart, you're off to a good race. And then, you know, James and in 1 John, we hear that you also, you have to exhibit in your life. Does your life and, and your morality show that you've embraced Jesus and you're following his ways? Yes, you'll mess up, but do you repent? How do you know? Maybe, uh, let's say the social test. Um, You have to love your brothers and sisters. Do you love them well? Or do you hold grudges and are you bitter against your brothers and sisters? Do you have broken relationships that you have no desire to reconcile? Maybe you haven't passed the test. Is that pride still welling up in you? When I mentioned earlier that there's going to be a judgment day, that Christ will stand over all and judge all. How did that sit with you? Uh, two mistakes you can make. One, it may have bothered you. You say, what gives him the right to judge us? Pride. You're still in the bench. God's still in the dock, and now you're asking, how dare you be the type of God who judges, who has wrath? Maybe another response you could have is, um, yeah, go tell him, Jonathan. That's right. Christ is going to judge them all. But if there's not a, not a humility within you that you deserve to stand under that same judgment, if there's not a part of you that kind of gulps at the thought of that, then maybe you still don't get it all the way either because it's not in our goodness that we can stand before the judgment of Christ, but rather it's Christ and Christ alone. It's Christ and Christ alone. If you feel in you that maybe that little bit of self-righteousness saying, I'm one of the good ones and Christ is glad I'm on his team, there's still time to get it right. You can repent. Um, If you're one of the ones that's angry that that God would judge someone and there's a pride about you that God still needs to answer your questions or you can't really follow him, there's still time to get it right. Come to him. Repent of that too and come to him. Um, To wrap up, I really want to look at the heart of Paul. Um, I know this isn't an easy way to end. It wasn't probably an easy way to end the letter as Paul wrote it to this church. But I want to look at the heart of Paul for just a minute. As he, as he writes to this church, who to say the least has been challenging for him, but I want to do it, I want to tell you a story about a student uh, at another church that I ministered to. Um, his mom and dad loved the Lord deeply and had given their lives to service to him. His older sister loved the Lord deeply. It was a, uh, just an absolute wonderful student at a university where she was thriving in a campus ministry. She just loved Jesus. And man, they had a younger brother. And buddy, he rebelled in every way you could. And I'm not talking about mischief. I'm talking about doing things that were shameful. Things that brought deep shame to his family Um, things that should have brought shame to him, but he did not care. He did not care. And again and again, he would do things. I would hear, it was just a normal thing. Once a month, I would hear of some terrible thing that he had done. And 
Many people, other parents, urged him. They said he's a senior in high school. He's 18. Just cut him off. Send him out on his own. Just send him out on his own. Be done with this kid. Be done with him. And I remember I was like, well, I don't know. But then his senior year prom came, and he, after getting very drunk and very high, wrecked his, his family, the, his father's car, left it on the side of the road, and left the scene and didn't come home. Um, his parents found him, and again, they disciplined him like they'd done so often throughout his high school days, so much discipline. They said he's grounded basically for the rest of high school and all the summer. Um, and then they asked me to come talk to him, and I said I would, but I wanted to talk to them first. And to be honest, my message was something like what those other parents had said. I looked at him, and I said, he's 18. Don't you think it's time to just give this kid the boot? Like, don't you think it's time to just cut him loose? He's, he's putting you through hell. Don't you think it's time to get rid of him? Just kick him out? And I remember the dad looked up at me, and he said, he said, Jonathan, many people have told us that. And, and I'm really afraid that that day is going to come. I really am. He goes, but in the meantime, God has given us just a little more patience and just a little more grace. And we love him. And he's our son. And, and you see, I think if we ask Paul about the church in Corinth, his face would look a little bit like that parents looked. Because he wanted for that church what those parents wanted for their son. They wanted him to repent. They wanted to just keep pleading with him a little longer and to try to get him to be restored to their family. And that's what Paul wants. That's what he's talking about. He says, we're glad when we are weak and you are strong. It's, it's confusing, but what he's saying is, if we come and y'all have repented and y'all have changed your hearts, and y'all put yourself under the true gospel instead of presuming to be the judge of whether or not that gospel's true, if y'all would do that, then I would come and I wouldn't have to prove God's power. And if I did that, then I would appear weak again in the eyes of these super apostles. And I would love that, to show the weakness and gentleness of Christ to you. And, 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 and then he says, look at what he says, what his heart is for this church in verse 9. He says for this he says, for we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. You can just picture the apostle on his knees begging God that this church that he loves would repent and be restored. Someone may say to Paul, they're going to ridicule you and reject you. They're going to uh, question your authority and they're going to sin again and again the same old ways over and over again. Just be done with them, Paul, buddy. But he would say with that same look the father had on his face, that's, that's my church. I love them. And so I'm going to plead with them just a little while longer. There's still time for them to get it right. The reason Paul can be that way is because that's the heart of the Christ that he follows. Jesus, maybe before he went to the cross, someone could have said to him, why don't you just be done with them? Why don't you just move past them, Jesus? After all, they're going to reject you and ridicule you. The ones who say they're followers of yours are still going to rebel against you again and again. They'll abuse your grace and they'll take you for granted. They'll be lousy followers and they'll blame you when their life gets hard. They'll throw 
wrenches in the yard and curse your name when they have to come out of pocket a hundred bucks. They'll put you through hell, Jesus. But because he's so good, because he loved us so much, he, he laid down his life for us. He died to make us his own. And he loves us still and calls us still to come to him. So examine yourself. Is he in you? Do you know this Jesus? If you don't, if you don't know Jesus, if you realize that right now, come to him. He's good and loving. He's gracious and kind. He can handle your questions. There's still time to get it right. Maybe you've been bitter with God for a long time. Maybe the hand he's dealt you has made you angry. And my, my encouragement to you is run into the arms of the one who died to make you his own. He knows hurt. He knows sorrow. He'll walk with you through all of your hurt and sorrow. Would you, would you pray with me? Well, Father, we confess that we mess up, that we, we presume to know you and your ways and, and know what's best. Um, and when your ways don't line up, we, we challenge you and we, we question you. And Lord, we pray for forgiveness from that. And Lord, we submit ourselves to you. We humbly submit ourselves uh, to the gospel, Lord, and we cling to the gospel because it's our only hope that Christ is in us. It's the only way to pass that test. And so, Lord, we do pray. We do pray that you would convince us again of your might and power, but also convince us of your love, the posture of your heart towards us. Help us to run to you. Lord, we pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, we're going to do something a little different today. Um, Ryan and I were talking about the, the order of worship, and we decided that if in that day when the church read that letter, at the end they decided to gather together and corporately confess sin, that would have made the Apostle Paul very happy, and it would have made the heart of God very happy. And so today we're going to, before we sing and respond, we're going to confess sin together and hear hope from God's word together. Would you read and confess along with me? Father and righteous judge of all, we come before you, humbled by your word and convicted of our sin. Forgive us for taking up thrones of human strength and wisdom when we should bow before your throne of glory and power. You are perfect in all of your ways towards us, and your love is unfailing. Thank you for the mercy you give us today. And this is our hope that we find in Psalm 25. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right, and he teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. Would you stand and join us in responding to God and our love for Christ?